This episode is a new frontier for the Ability Podcast. Normally, this show is about getting the personal experiences from people who have disabilities. But how do you get the experiences for someone who can't share them themselves? That doesn't mean their experience isn't valued. That shouldn't be shared. So we're taking a wild stab in the dark. In this episode, I talk to Cheryl Albright, who has a brother with autism and really wants to share at least a little bit with us about what Jimmy's life is like. This episode is with love to Jimmy Albright. So how are you doing today? If you're ready to go, then my first question is usually, how are you doing today? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. So I guess first, tell me about yourself. Well, for your listeners, my name is Cheryl Albright. I am a sibling of a 43-year-old with on the autism spectrum on a severe end. Uh, he needs 24-hour care. And with that, I became an occupational therapist and currently own my own uh, wellness practice in Sarasota, Florida. So it's fair to say your brother changed your life a bit. I was born into his world, so I don't know that it was changed. It just shaped it. <laughs> um, he's the older sibling, and so what I thought was normal it is not to most people. So, yeah, I say he was my first teacher, and he's never said a word. So uh, tell us about your brother, I guess. Is there anything else you want to share? I guess his name would be lovely. (laughs) (laughs) His name is James. I call him Jimmy. um, So, but his staff calls him James, which I think is kind of funny. He lives in a group home. And, you know, before I get on my soapbox about adult services and lack thereof and um, all of that fun stuff, he's a pretty, he's a pretty happy guy. He doesn't really have any behaviors. He has a mischievous sense of humor. So one of my favorite stories is I got a phone call when I was in college saying that, you know, it was this frantic call from his group home saying that he had uh, destroyed property and they were all distraught. And I was like, okay, you know, calm down. Like what happened? And the long story short was that he was probably left to his own devices for too long. So he decided he was going to take apart the toilet. Problem was he forgot one major step, which was to turn off the water. And so the destruction of property they were talking about was essentially flooding, which I kind of giggled because they're like, it's not funny. And I said, it kind of is because you just called me to tell me he wasn't supervised appropriately. So thank you for that. But, you know, he just, when left to his own devices, he will find things for himself to do. He just, but he just, just has this prankish sense of humor about him he just wants people to know that he he knows what's going on and well you also have to admire somebody that when left alone their first thought is i'll take something apart that's right (laughs) i mean my college professors are like great he likes to do stuff with his hands give him more you know give him more stuff to do so yeah if somebody would you know take the time and do something with that appropriately clearly he had no tools and still was able to, you know, I was like, give him a trade, give him something to do, give him something to do with his hands. And then he won't do things like take a part of his toilet. But 
he just he just has this you know you can i call it the plotting look like he gets a look in his eyes like he's trying to figure out something or he's about to do something and he's just like plotting something in his head and you know that kind of that's carried over to even my clients like i can tell when they're about to do something they're not supposed to do and so i thank him for that <laughs> i'm like i know that look no this is what we're gonna do next so he's just a funny guy um and when you get to know him you get to see those sides unfortunately you know in adult land and group homes and things there's just a high staff turnover and it's a crap job and so you don't always get the greatest of staff and it's not for, it's not true for everybody but for the most part and so it's hard because then you know there's nobody consistent and there's or even within an organization they'll shift staff around and so you get somebody who's really good and they're like oh we move them across the street it's just like so but once you get to know him he's he's pretty funny <laughs> Stop me if you disagree, but I wonder if a lot of that problem is that nobody goes to nursing school with that as an outcome. Nobody wants to go to nursing school to think I want to work at a group home or something like that. Well, the pay is not there. I mean, if you're going to get a nursing degree, you're going to go be a nurse on the floor at a hospital and make a lot more money than you know, a state run, and I can say institution, even though people argue with me, but um, where he is, the institution was just moved into a house. So they still have that institutionalized mentality for care. And, you know, even my own mother will argue, well, that's a group home. I, yeah, no, it's, it's not. <laughs> when you start talking to people, it's really not. They just... They took the big building and just separated it out into houses. They're they're segregated in their community. Yes, they're in a house. Yes, they're on a cul-de-sac, but the entire street is nothing but group homes. So to me, that's not inclusion. But to get back to what you were saying about like the lack of, I would love it if it was like, you know, 24-hour nursing care and people care, the care part, you know, but it, when you pay people minimum wage, you get the same kind of attitudes and things that you see in like skilled nursing facilities or assisted living facilities. And that, you know, they have like one of the hardest jobs for the least amount of pay. And they're the ones doing the care 24 seven. If there's, you know, an accident, they have to clean it up. If there's an issue, they have to deal with it. And it's, minimal training too like you might have to have a high school degree to have one of those jobs or a high school diploma but it's hard to say you know this the states well at the, even at the federal level they keep cutting funding to these folks who weren't asked to be born this way and then we have to somehow figure out a way to take care of them because it doesn't stop when they turn 18 or stop when it turns 21 when they're you know transitioned out of high school and yet they keep cutting funding and the quality of care just keeps going down. Now that's not true for every facility. There's a couple of facilities near me that are amazing. That's not, you know, it depends on the organization, but anything that's state run or federally run, I mean, it all comes about back down to balancing the budget, right? 
well, yeah, you know, of course, if you can afford the Ferrari of homes. Right. I would love that. I would love to, you know, and I will be moving them soon, but it's just, it's like, how do you, there's no good solution to that problem. And if they're going to continue cutting funding, the care is just going to get worse. And, you know, there's some great nonprofits out there doing some great things. Um, so they can tap into some of the private sector and, you know, solicit for funds. But these government run ones are they're government run, right? <laughs> like I mean, it's hard to I'm trying to stay PC without getting mad. So but that's I mean, that's the reality of the situation. Nursing's just not very valued in our society as of now. I mean, I think the last time I stayed in a hospital, it was one nurse to like 10 patients or more, I think. It was, it was, that's insane. And, it, and then you have a special need on top of it. Like I, you know, as an OT, I've worked in acute care settings and I will never forget. I was there, I think it was on call or I was there in an off hour and the one of the physical therapists came up to me and said, hey, we've got this individual. Will you come with me? And I said, sure, no problem. And it was, it was an adult with cerebral palsy. And he had limited verbal communication, but his gesturing and everything else was on point. Like he was totally communicative. And the nurse was like, oh, he's just getting agitated because da, da, da. And I was like, uh, okay. So I ignored what she said. And I, kind of, I went in and I talked to him. I was like, hey, you know, like talk to him like a human being. Imagine that you know, like, hey, how's your day, blah, blah, blah. And I was told he was completely dependent for all of his activities of daily living. So I, handed, I was like, can you put your sock on and off? And he shook his head yes and demonstrated. And I was like, okay. So nobody took the time to figure out what his, so the reason he was getting agitated is he wanted to call a family member to, for somebody to come in and like translate for him. All he wanted was somebody to give him a shave because that's what he did every morning. That was it. So me and the nurse had a little chat after that, but <laughs> because they're stretched so thin and because they're reading something on a piece of paper about, well, if he is in a group home, he must, he must have some cognitive disability too. And that, and no, <laughs> no, he has physical limitations that he needs assistance with. Maybe there was some cognitive, but his communicative intents were there. I mean, you just had to take the time to say, oh, he pointed to his face and he pointed to a razor. I don't, <laughs> I don't see how it could get any dumber <laughs> easy than that. It was just, you know, people just don't know what they don't know. And they don't teach that in nursing school either. So that's part of, part of my missions is to, you know, train the community on our folks and how to interact with somebody that maybe doesn't talk with using words and first responders to, you know, I train anybody I can when I'm working in a hospital, but you know, it's one small hospital, one small part of the country. We'll fix it sometime. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get to it eventually. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's in, it's, it's in the works. It's just, you know, creating curriculum sometimes is time consuming. So tell me about uh, you and Jimmy growing up. What was that like? Interesting. Like I said, when I, you know, what I thought was normal, <laughs> like everybody's house has all this fun equipment, right? Um, 
he, you know, as he got older, his behavior, he did have some behaviors hitting like that puberty years and who doesn't. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so, and my parents, you know, ended up getting divorced. And I think, you know, if you, what we know about trauma now and the fact that he didn't have words to communicate at that time, you know, it comes out in behavior comes out in, yeah, I'm mad. I'm going to punch a hole in the window. And so, you know, I grew up with plexiglass on all of our windows and his light fixtures were sealed off so that he couldn't break them in the middle of the night. And, you know, my, my childhood was completely different than a lot of others. Like I couldn't really have sleepovers. He was up, like my bedroom was directly across the hall and he's up at 3 a.m. and needs to be changed and, you know, um, cared for in the middle of the night. So it was really difficult to explain that to friends because I was the only one, there's maybe one other individual in town, but I think I was like one of the only ones that had a sibling with any kind of disability and definitely in my circle. Like there, by the time I got to high school, he was in a group home. And so if you didn't know me well, you would have thought I was an only child. And that's horribly isolating. <laughs> and I just wouldn't, you know, I just didn't talk about it. Unless you knew me from when I was little, you just didn't know. And nobody, I mean, nobody really knew. It was just kind of, it kind of went back to like, so I had an aunt with Down syndrome too. And it was kind of like my grandfather's mentality of just keeping it quiet. Like, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to say much. We're not going to, it's there, but we're not going to acknowledge it. So not a whole lot was talked about. Nobody explained to me, hey, your brother has autism. It was just, I kind of just had to figure out that he's not like the kids I go to school with. And then now I have this label. We did go to two different schools. This was back, um, I, I, he was diagnosed pre, I call it pre-Rain Man, so before 1980. Um, schools were still pretty segregated at the time. And he went to a different school than I did even when we were little. So nobody, nobody knew and we just didn't talk about it. <laughs> and that's kind of the, toward the end of that era. Now everybody talks about everything, right? There's social media, there's a million platforms, there's people are live streaming their daily lives. So it's not as quiet as it used to be, but it was definitely, I would say isolating. And, you know, with my, not to knock my family at all, but the mentality of we're just not going to talk about it. Well, now I have questions. <laughs> like, that's not, this is not how this works. And so, yeah, it was different. It was totally different. The dynamic changes. I mean, I don't know how it was for you and your family. I mean, obviously you can talk and you can, you know, articulate thoughts and needs and you're, you know, it was a little different when you have a sibling who's now six foot something and just kind of jumps up and down and says, the letter E sound. Although when you can push him, he will communicate with the communication part, but that's a different, <laughs> that's a different question, but it was challenging. You know, there's, I know a lot of families that I work with now, it's a, it's a stress on the, on the whole family unit. And depending on the severity of the disability, it makes a huge difference too. So Anyway, I got off topic again, <laughs> but yes, it was, it was different. 
Talk about whatever you want. I'm not the boss of you. Uh, <laughs> um, I will ramble around for hours, my friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fun. Pre-Rain Man and post-Rain Man. That's how you divide culture. Yeah, because <laughs> nobody really talked. So when he was diagnosed, um, it was the DSM-3, the Diagnostic, um, Diagnostic Statistic Manual. And it fell under, even words we don't even use anymore, it fell under the MR umbrella. And so autism didn't even have its own separate diagnosis. So even today, his will say autism and intellectual disability. Fast forward past that, autism got its own category in the DSM. But if you were diagnosed prior to that, that that MR and now what we call intellectual disability is still um hooked to it and so like I jokingly say pre-Rain Man because nobody really knew what autism was and that and it was I'm glad the movie came out and that you know it was talked about but it was one very small part of the whole autism spectrum and so I remember this after I was out of college and um probably get myself in trouble for talking about it but Jenny McCarthy came out and said I cured my son with autism and blah blah and I was working in home health with children at the time so every parent wanted to know when I was going to cure their child and I looked at my brother and I was like do you want to go to Oprah and like show her what autism really looks like like <laughs> I'll just let you destroy her stat and he just started laughing he thought that was hilarious but you know it, it there's now we know, right? But I think Rayman was definitely a pivotal point in bringing disability awareness to Hollywood. It is what it, you know, it is what it is. I think What's Eating Gilbert Grape did a much better portrayal of what <laughs> um, intellectual disability can look like. Yeah, so that, to answer your question, yes, that's how I kind of divide time, <laughs> times pre- 1980, I forget when that movie came out, 86, 87, and then past that. And it continues to evolve, but I know he's more on the severe end of things. Like a lot of the children I work with now, and even adults, they're verbal. I mean, they're talking, they're, and it looks completely different. Not all of them, but a lot of them. But they still don't look like Dustin Hoffman's character. They don't, they're not savants. Like I have, I've maybe met one or two in my entire career so far. And that's been about 16 years. I wish I looked like Dustin Hoffman. Right. <laughs> right. Like if you had that kind of memory, like I would, yes. Well, no, no, it doesn't matter which character. I just want to look like Dustin Hoffman. Oh. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's, that's no. Um, <laughs> well, now I really lost my train of thought there. That's yeah, that was great that's, for me. Uh, I just couldn't help for the joke. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how, like, you know, when you have a disability in your life, you always, I don't know, I always jump to humor. And I always find it funny when people are kind of slightly outside my world, I guess, and they hear me, you know, make a joke, and they always, you know, kind of do a double take. I always find that just so interesting. When I get nervous, I joke that I turn into a one-man comedy show, and so that's, I understand what you're saying, especially when it came to, 
you know, maybe something my brother was doing. So yeah, no, you're hundred percent correct. Going to humor and lightening up the mood of something that's maybe not so light. So what was school like for Jimmy? I don't remember a whole lot um, when he in his younger years. Like there's pictures, but when he was older, and I had an, enough of a memory to know he had this amazing teacher. I don't know if she's still <laughs> in her physical body on this earth or not, but um, her name was Jill, and she just I almost went into special ed. Like she was so good with those guys, and you would never know that they had any kind of disabilities. Like she just went about her day, treated them like they were human beings. And I would, when I got old enough, would skip school to go hang out in his classroom. Um, and we, I forget what we call it. We like, not even like volunteer hours, but like observation hours before I went to college, right? And so like, I just loved being in his classroom. And his school, really had, um, they had taken, which was once segregated and put it into one of the local high schools. And they had their own, I don't want to say wing, but they had their own classroom within the high school. And they did, before the merger kind of happened, they did this huge, you know, thing on disability awareness. And I'm sure there was a couple jerks that had their own issues, but for the most part, the football team really adopted his classroom. So if they found him wandering around campus, they would make sure he got back to his classroom. Or um, at that point, he was mainstreamed into different classes. I'd get in trouble when he got higher grades than I did. But he took English. I forget all the court. It's been a it's been a while now. Um, I know he took English and I, maybe even biology. And there were he went with a one on one into the classroom. Um, and so what mainstreaming should look like and um, doesn't always happen today because of goes back down to that dollar, right? So his high school was pretty cool. For his last year, he got a different teacher, and I was so disappointed because it's like you couldn't just let him finish it out. Um, but it was back in the day when they would let that teacher just stay with these group of kids. So he was with the same one for, I don't know, at least 10 years. And just the way she like ran things and met their sensory needs and integrated them into the school. And I have a lot of people that I've met as an adult that were like, oh, your brother went to Midlakes? I remember him. Like, because remember, we were in two different schools, so nobody really knew. And in two different counties. And so they were like, oh, yeah, I, you know, me and my husband, we both became therapists because of, you know, the way they ran that classroom and stuff. Because you could get your observation hours before going to school, before going to university. And so they, they did, I don't know what it looks like now, but at the time, I just remember they, they did the best that they could for that time period, which was uh, mid, late 90s. And so that part was cool. Adult land. Oh, <laughs> uh, horrible. But the school years, I remember, just light bulbs went off for him. They, you know, because he fell under that MR 
what we call intellectual disability umbrella now. Nobody thought he could become potty trained and they got him potty trained when he was 16 and they figured out he could communicate with facilitated communication, which they don't use much of now. They think it's hokey, but um, that jump started everything. And so like for the first time he could say, yeah, I want to come home this weekend and this is what I want to eat and this is what I want to do. And his behavior stopped. I mean, like dead in their tracks. Never saw him punch a hole in anything again. Never saw him break a window. Never. He just, he calmed down because he finally had a voice. And so I credit the speech therapist and all of his teachers, you know, for that. And that I think is really what drove me to do what I do now. Well, I'm sure once you can say, this is what I want for dinner, that probably helps you immensely with your happiness. Well, you know, I talked to people about that. I was like, I <laughs> was recently in a very long disagreement with one of his psychologists and said, I want you to go live in that house for the weekend. You're not allowed to talk. You're not allowed to make your wants and needs known. And you tell me how it goes. And of course, she won't do that. But like to, like to drive the point home, um, we're in a big fight regarding medication right now. And I said, I'm not going to put a Band-Aid on something when you're not getting to the root cause of, you know, what's causing his anxiety and some of what they call behaviors, which I, I just laughed at them. I was like, that is not a behavior because <laughs> you did not grow up in our household. That is minimal. So, you know, what is he trying to communicate? And if you just mask or numb some of his coping skills, you're not really doing him a service. And so she won't go do the homework I asked her to go do. So <laughs> she'll never know how it is or how it makes it feel. And, you know, I get really annoyed with the so-called autism experts because there's a lot of them out there and they have all these degrees and these pretty things on their wall, but they've never actually lived it. They've never been in the household. They've never had to do some of these activities of daily living. They've never had, you know, those stressful situations and they, they have no clue, but they, they consider themselves an expert because of all the pieces of paper on their wall. What do you think is the biggest challenge Jimmy has had to overcome? People realizing that just because he doesn't talk doesn't mean he's deaf. He hears and understands everything that goes on. Um, but people assume he doesn't like heaven forbid we actually get him back to communicating like he was in high school, the things he would tell us about his staff. I think, I think that's the biggest one. And just people realizing that he's still a human and coming from that perspective that we're all different. We all have different ways of communicating. We all have different things that we like to do every day. I think that's the biggest one. I remember he taught me that a long time ago and I was, I was covering for a clinic and there's an individual that came in and I read, you know, autism on his chart and where he was going to school and that kind of thing. And so he got into the waiting room and I got down on his level and I said, hey, you know, hi, my name is Cheryl and we're going to play a few games today. 
you know, so I'll give you a couple of minutes and then we'll walk back um, and I'll show you what room we'll be in. And the foster parent was like, he doesn't talk. I was like, but he's not deaf. And the second I said that, he like snapped his head around, looked up at me and like stood up and was like, I'm ready to go. And everything that she said he couldn't do, I must say I won't kind of personality anyway. I would just, oh no, he can't do that. I'm like, <laughs> watch this. <laughs> That's one of the, I, you know, my husband jokes, it's my hold my beer moment and I'll prove you wrong. And I did it for an hour and the woman was just like, huh. And so I think it's adding attitude barriers when it comes to that, like, oh, they can't possibly understand what's going on because, you know. I think that's the biggest hurdle. I can't even imagine what somebody would go through who actually had autism. I mean, I got that even as a kid, and I'm just a wheelchair user. But mm -hmm. I got people who would take three steps away and start talking about me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's just wild. And I would have to go, hey, you know, I can hear you, right? Like, <laughs> you know, you're, <laughs> you, know, you know, to make that fun for myself, I would always call them out on that. Like, I can still hear you. You took right. three steps over there, but I can still hear you. People, you know, people don't know what they don't know. And there's people that choose to stay ignorant. What's your hope for the future when it comes to Jimmy? I... You know, in all of my studies and certificates and my degree and everything else, I know that the brain can continue to change throughout the lifespan until you hit like the end stages of the dementia and your brain actually turns to essentially pudding, then I'm out. But before any of that happens, the brain can change itself. And so what I want for him is just a happy existence. Like you and I have choices and you and I you know, you get to do this podcast and interview these people with disabilities and show people that, you know, that there's a world out there and you're part of it. And for him, I know the things that he likes to do throughout his day. And so if you just do those things to keep him happy, I think he'd be willing to communicate some more. And I think he would, he, he would be happy. And like, you can clearly tell he's depressed where he is and we've got some family stuff going on that's adding you know a separate layer to that and his staff tells me the things that he likes to do and I'm like why can't you make a whole day of that like <laughs> why can't he be happy all day long instead of one activity once a month um and just give him the opportunity to do things that he wants to do you know I I I can choose right I can choose to have my own business and to have the flexibility to be able to go do things and and help other people. And for him, right now he's stuck in an institution that dictates what he can do, what he can eat, what he can, they say he picks out his own clothes, but I don't think that's true. Um, and things, just basic things, right? And so my hope for him is just to be happy. And being closer to me where I have a little bit more control over things, you know, put those things throughout his day and make sure that there's a speech therapist that's actually doing their job. The current one is 
doing signs. He's had the same five signs since I was born. Lady, move on. Like, he knows how to read. Like, he <laughs> was the mainstream in high school. Like, start working on functional communication. And so I think, you know, him having a voice, like, I would love it someday if he just wrote a book. But that's my hope, not his. <laughs> I hope that he puts all this god-awful stuff in writing and kind of exposes, you know, the stuff there, you know, the big buzz right now is trauma-informed. And anybody who's been living in a state-run, we'll call it facility, I should stop calling it institution, we'll call it facility, is constantly being re-traumatized over and over again, whether it's by staff or by the system or I really wanted to have this tonight, but we're having this for dinner and I don't have a choice. Like that over time, like, can you imagine if you were fed the same thing, like on a monthly rotation, that's what you ate every day. And you had no say so of what that was. Same thing, the same thing is happening in like skilled nursing and in assisted living facilities too. It's the same, different population, but it's the same idea. And so for him, I would, I, you know, I hope someday that he <laughs> writes a book, but my ultimate goal for him is just to be, have a happy, healthy existence. Have him write a tell-all book and we'll give it a really sappy title and a really great ah, cover. Uh, and we'll, you know, put it on Oprah's book club. And now we got <laughs> a plan. Oprah would be ready for it. To be honest, it would be too exposing, I think. Um, you know, now in the day and age of self-publishing, like, imagine. <laughs> like, Amazon makes it really easy. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it would be really cool for him, from his point of view, what he thinks, even from childhood. And, you know, I read, I've read Temple Grandin and um, Donna, forget her last name. There's a bunch of authors out there now. Um, they're on the spectrum that talk about the talk about what it is. Um, the reason I jump, I forget the guy who wrote it. And then you know, the Mind Tree. And there's there's several other authors from all over the world. And you know, for a long time, I was always trying to figure out why he is the way he is. Why <laughs> the why I was. <laughs> I would, you know, you told me something as a kid not to go do something, and I'm always like, but why? <laughs> and so I was always trying to figure out, like, his but why. And so I read all these books, and I just, I want to hear his, I want to hear it in his voice. Like, why is it when somebody touches you, you jump? Or why is it that you only like a certain clothing types. And why is it that when you get anxious, you like shred apart things string by string? Why? I just want to know why. And then the other why is, uh, you know, what actually goes on in these facilities? Enlighten me. Like, let's expose. And if that can be the case, you know, I would go all balls to the wall at the federal level. <laughs> like, you're... So people, I know, and I'm going to get myself in trouble for even comparing the two, but the whole issue with the border and how people are treated, go into any state-run facility for any any population, seniors or whatever, you're going to see the same 
you're going to see a lot of the same lack of care, lack of health care, lack of access to. And so, you know, I recently wrote a blog post about we're still, at least in the disability community, the separate but equal phase of civil rights. And <laughs> why? Like, I just don't understand. Like, we're all humans. And I understand that the government can only do so much. Like, I get there's only so much money to go around. And we have to, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, we do need to take care of the military and our veterans and all of that stuff. These are, these are individuals who are not asked to be born this way and not asked to be treated this way either. And I just don't, I don't get it. Maybe we just filled a, maybe we just build a few fewer tanks. Right. Problem solved. <laughs> right, yeah. right. We'll just put, we'll put them all in one spot with a wall around it and call it a day. Like that's, I mean, that's kind of, unfortunately, where her current administration would like to head. But I just, we're all, pe you know, we're all people at the end of the day. Like I just don't understand. And I, under and I do understand, I like I've done a lot of traveling and I do understand that we're, a lot more progressive than a lot of especially like Asian countries but I'm still like but we're still fighting similar battles like we're not that much further ahead than India as far as our care for our folks with disabilities or even you know Japan they just keep it quiet like that you know that wasn't that long ago like we're not that much further ahead I mean it seems to be moving a lot slower and I don't understand why if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates? You did good. You did the best that you could with what you were given. And, you know, for a long time, I wasn't sure if I even believed in, in any of it when I was younger, because I was the but why kid, right? And but why is he like that? And but why do I have to go through this? And but why? But why? And, you know, if you did good with the tools you were given and there was a reason that you were put with the family you were given and I just, you did a good job. That is my last question. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, that was it. Thanks so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Wow. Thanks for having me. I need to start talking about this more. So thank you for giving me the platform. Thanks so much to Cheryl Albright for being on this episode. And thank you for listening. You can find all sorts of links and information at abilitypodcast.com forward slash Jimmy Albright. You can find lots of other really cool episodes at abilitypodcast.com also. I encourage you to do that. Check them out. They're really fun. But until next time, keep on rolling.